Driven to Fail is part of the Haggerty Podcast Network. Comedy failed John Cruson. I'm lucky enough to call our next guest a friend. He was one of the founding editors of The Onion, the award-winning comedy website. A book he co-wrote won the James Thurber Prize for American Humor. Chris Farley crashed his wedding. Stephen Colbert interviewed him for a job. An Emmy-winning writer for Rick and Morty labeled John one of the sharpest comedic minds he'd ever met. That was his first job. Then his business changed. John wanted to write comedy, not perform or build scripts for TV or film. And about a decade back, that effectively evaporated as a business. The Onion all but collapsed, so he chased another childhood dream. And unlike a lot of people who pick automotive journalism as a second career, he wasn't rich or famous. He just wanted to write about what he loved. He started off as a staff writer at Jalopnik, and then he worked with and for me when I was executive editor at Road and Track. Now, this isn't a Cinderella story. Jalopnik was a bad fit, and John left after a few months. R&T wasn't great either. Our management let him go after just a few years. But John dug deep, and he started putting the pieces together. He became a highly sought-after freelance editor and writer, and he now works full-time for Cycle World, helping shape the largest motorcycle publication on Earth. He is in demand largely because of what he learned when his life didn't work out. I'm Sam Smith. I'm a journalist and a club racer, and I love stories. This is a podcast about what we do when life doesn't go as we want. Welcome to Driven to Fail. Let's start at the beginning. So The Onion grew out of a campus newspaper at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Yes. And it's it's so appealing, right? This deeply punk rock thing. We, we start this thing that doesn't exist because we want it. But how do you build a comedy newspaper when nobody has built a comedy newspaper before? Well, we had an advantage in that Madison is a huge school. There's a built-in audience for what you're doing, no matter what you're doing, as long as you're running coupons, which is what we did. I mean, it was ad-based print sales 101. And um, because there were 45 thousand students on campus uh printing up uh what was our first few print runs were like six thousand papers we did whatever the the state journal the actual real paper in madison uh whatever they had left over at the end of their print run we do once a week so we get between five and six thousand papers um i'm sure if i'm not remembering this correctly you'll get 30 or 40 55 year old guys writing in to tell you what really happened but um it was not exactly just us out there. It was us and the two student papers, the Badger Herald and the Daily Cardinal, and something called, um, uh, well, anyway, and like six other local scene papers, but we were the only ones doing comedy. And we were the only ones who didn't bother, frankly, censoring ourselves. And we got better deals on coupons from, than everybody else. So... Um, that's how you do it. Also, if you don't pay your staff or anyone who works for you, um, you can get ahead really quickly by cutting out that overhead. So, um, let me think from the late eighties until 1994, I want to say we were once a week, 32 pages at most, um, cut off the bottom four inches of the paper and get a coupon book. But, and that's how we managed to make it work. But as a, as a creative thing, right? Like you, you get something like that off the ground and nobody 
nobody was thinking about whether it would work or not. Like you don't sit there and start something like that planning for what you do when it comes apart. How, how important is that when you, when you start something like that, right? Not thinking about what could possibly pull it apart. Well, the great thing about the early days, um, the element of risk was the great thing about it. (laughs) It's actually a line from a Led Zeppelin box set, uh, late night ad. It was the kind of thing that we'd watch at the onion while putting the paper together. The great thing about it was there was no element of risk. The paper was going to go out. The paper was making, uh, making enough money that we didn't have to really worry about what we were doing. So we were allowed to fail. Like we had a vague sense of what was popular and what wasn't. Um, but we'd run like soap opera um, updates in on the front page. And we'd run weird local comic strips anywhere we wanted to. And we'd run whatever anyone there thought was funny. So it was wildly all over the place and hit or miss. And it wasn't exactly to any kind of formula. Uh, the very first issue was about a, a sea monster that was invading campus, Mendota Monster Malls Madison. <laughs> and it was very, God, weekly world news. It was very weekly world news. Um, but the issues after that didn't necessarily conform to any kind of formula. So we were allowed to do basically whatever we wanted. It's not like we could be fired, really. <laughs> and it's not like anyone was depending on us to do amazing work. Uh, but slowly, we just kind of realized that we wanted to figure out like an identity for the paper more than anything else. And we slowly became uh, more news satire than anything else. Um, it was mostly gradual until... Um, God, I'm going to screw up the dates because I wasn't there. Uh, I moved to New York. Uh, to take a job at MTV, of all places. Um, but in my absence, The Onion did just fine. Hmm. And they started to become a weekly, not weekly world news. Uh, USA Today, if anyone remembers that newspaper, a USA Today parody, because it was the easiest uh, newspaper to, you know, to satirize. Okay, but 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 talk about that for a second, right? So, like, there's there's this innate... You don't build media like that anymore. At least media, if you if you want to employ people, there there is this demand now where everything that you you start, whether it's a magazine, a website, you know, a, a YouTube channel, on some level, like that time has to be justified. There has to be a business model for it. How how important, how critical was it that there was no there was no penalty for coming apart and there was a leash on it, right? There was no clock on on getting that thing running in a certain time, and it ended up because of that. It almost ended up being bigger than anybody anticipated, right? So you went, you went to MTV, you came back, you moved back to Madison when it was still a paper. And then several years later, right? You know, there are these, these landmarks in the history of the brand, right? It ends up the staff, it ends up getting Mm -hmm. big enough that you move it, you you move it wholesale from Madison, from college town to New York city, not really knowing what the point of doing it is. It just seemed to make sense because that's, because a comedy city. And then you get there and then you're, (laughs) The day before you have a launch party for the thing, the day before September 11th, 2001. And then there's this massive moment where the 2001 issue comes out after September. Sorry, the September 11th issue comes out in this moment when all of comedy had kind of shut down, when the world was shut down. And you, like, there, everything, the brand almost ended up in these places that you couldn't have planned to take it in large part because of how it was built. And 
and all of what the way it was built is rooted in that that leash and that 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 eye on the fact that early on it you know there there was no such thing with failure in it and if it took five years to get off the runway it didn't matter like do you think it, it it could have been put together in a it could have been put together in a different a different landscape where where everything had to be accounted for and you had 12 months to fly the thing into greatness or somebody would shut it off it could have happened it easily could have happened because people that's how most media is assembled these days that's how you plan a magazine launch or a tv series or as you know any kind of intellectual property you want to do i mean the fact that we grew organically out of a out of a campus paper is kind of nuts and the fact that we retained almost all the staff that had started at this pokey little campus paper is frankly amazing um uh the only reason it happened was because we had at least one or two people um who had a definite idea of where they wanted the brand to go and um it was generally aligned with the sensibility of everyone else in the room who had less ambition and maybe weren't looking, you know, more than a few weeks forward, but we definitely had a sensibility that we wanted to convey in everything that we wrote. Um, the person that was responsible for turning the onion into, well, for bringing the onion into the world of, you know, color printing <laughs> and uh, regular, um, I feel like I'm talking about the dawn of television. <laughs> Uh, I mean, because point, we're not even to the internet yet. At this the, point, the point, it's point 20 years talking, ago, which is crazy. But yeah, well, the point I'm talking about is is twenty is twenty eight years ago. Hey. In 1994, Ben Carlin, who was eventually the one of the creators of the John Stewart Daily Show, was on staff, and he um, was the main guy who turned us into a USA Today parody, uh, not parody, a USA Today analog in satire, and decided that we would do like current events based news satire and that we had the chops to do it. And, um, it was the right move. You can't really, you can't really uh, deny that. Um, and that translated really well to the internet when we decided to actually, and the story of, of, uh, making a bunch of, um, comedy oriented skeptics believe in the internet is pretty funny, <laughs> but it turns out that thing kind of caught on. And, um, yeah, from there, uh, we just decided to go with that and it turned into what really got us moving, moved to New York was our decision to jump on the end of the millennium bandwagon and do a history of the 20th century and onion front pages. And we got a book deal out of that and that got us enough attention that, um, we no longer, you know, had to be paid in cheese sandwiches and we could get our teeth insured and, and, um, yeah. And hire people full time and actually have staff. Okay. So, so, so let's, let's focus on that for a second. Right. So, and, and, and eventually I promise we'll get into car stuff because that's, that is where your, you know, that's a big hinge point in your career and, and how you got out of comedy and into car media is, is, is a large part of, of why you're here and why I want to talk to you about this. But so there's this 10 year period where from about 2000 to 2010, The Onion was, was kind of on this, this peak of a wave, right, culturally. You know, the book you wrote that you just mentioned won the James Thurber Prize for American Humor, right? There, you, you know, there were TV shows. It's over there. Yeah. <laughs> one on my shelf. There were TV shows, you know, you were approached left and right to spit out movie pitches, you know, and, and, and the 2001, the 9-11 issue, 
you know, kind of marked this, this approach to thinking about comedy and this, this responsibility. You know, you told me once that there was this responsibility felt to help people digest what's happening in the world and to come to terms with it in a relevant way, which sounds awfully deep and weird and thick for, you know, making a bunch of jokes about what's going on in the headlines. But at the same time, that's ultimately what you do when you're creating anything or trying to have a statement on anything. But what, what's interesting about the onion is how it, it grew. And then eventually, you know, I remember going to that office. I visited you at one point when I was working at Gawker at Jalopnik in 2009, I think. I remember going to that office yeah. on Broadway in Soho, you know, this big airy place with giant windows, was buzzing with people. It was this old school, old school rabbit warren office built to create, to kind of to manufacture on a daily basis, ridiculousness. And I, you know, even down to the fact that at the end of the week, you know, that everybody would take the drinks cart and go drink whiskey on the building roof at, you know, at the end of a Friday. And then, and then something changed, right? Things started to the business side of of the brand started to shift what what was what was that like and and why did it change because it wasn't it wasn't really a failure it was really just intense success right it was rooted in success yeah but it was still terrible i mean you know how how it felt was terrible um well talk to me so so what what exactly happened what was terrible what what was going well first of all before i say anything i should say that um the onion was very classically split along, and it's an unfortunate term, but you know, uh, people call it in publishing called the Chinese wall between editorial and ad sales and whatever. That's the traditional term um, that you don't bother each other. Like you don't ask the ad people if you can punch up the jokes in their ads, and the ad people don't tell you not to write certain jokes. And uh, we very rarely had run ins with the ad people. Um, but that said, I would hate to be the person responsible for selling ads in the onion or for selling big corporations on having a big uh, rollout of the onion. And uh, we wound up doing a lot of what's called the vice trade. You know, we'd be the ones who would have huge back page ads for um, uh, Fireball or uh, cigarettes or, you know, whatever. I think. Our biggest legit ad buy in the old days was Scion when Toyota launched Scion to get a little bit of car stuff in there. Uh, we did major um, stuff with them. Um, but it's just hard to like it, when you're doing something that's legitimately transgressive, which we tried to. We didn't try to just do the whole thing where people are like, oh, they're disrespectful. What's the word? They're uh, they're brash. They're. They're uh, irreverent. We didn't want to be irreverent. We wanted to be legitimately confrontational whenever we could. Um, so selling ads with us was not easy. Um, but what happened was we launched this big video arm back when everyone was uh, really hot on doing, on, on doing video. And supposedly you got seven times the engagement of just regular text or whatever, if you did your own in-house video. Well, you know, it took a few years, but it turned out that was not the case. Or, you know, it took you at least seven times the amount of money to get seven times that engagement or whatever, Um, uh, which is a shame because we were putting out really good video. Onion News Network did great stuff. Um, It just wasn't necessarily the most profitable stuff that we'd ever done uh, once you factored in you know, production costs and time and all that. 
And as always, I mean, you've worked for a major magazine. Um, the magazine never pays you for all your time. It's pretty much a 24-hour job if you're doing it right or you care enough. What it came down to was they just didn't want to pay us to be in New York anymore, and they didn't see the reason we should be in New York. Um, so they, the owners came in one day, and our business manager came in one day and announced that we were going to be moving the entire office to Chicago. Um, and it's no secret that whenever you move a business from one place to another, it's a way to weed out the staff. It's a soft firing yeah. is what it is. Right. So, um, we were forced to all, you know, most of us, myself included, it was the only real job I'd ever had was at the onion. And we were forced to sit back and think, is this something we want to do? Do we want to do this job in a different place where it doesn't have the resources or the atmosphere, or the community of New York City. I mean, at the time, the onion, was, the onion was as New York as it had ever been a Wisconsin paper. It was as New York as it comes. And it's 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 crazy, right? Like it's it's hard to imagine or hard to describe now if you weren't paying attention to culture or weren't around then, right? Like what it what it meant. I mean, you know, you have you had Aziz Ansari as an intern. You know, you had Hillary Swank as an intern at one point. I mean. It fell from this massive. Oh no, no, wait, wait, wait! I got to correct you there. Um, Hillary Swank wasn't an intern; she was a really good friend of one of our um, ad salesmen. Oh, I'm sorry. She, she was just had hanging gone out in the building because why not? Like, oh, oh. she was hanging out in the building because she was friends with Erica Christensen. <laughs> They'd grown up together and gone to. But the point and, is, uh, it was this. It was this massive organization. Like anybody who was anybody in comedy came through it or stopped in to see it when they were in town or came up through that. Stopped in to see it is probably, yeah. But that's, but it, it was a massive organization. There were all these massive projects, books and a website, movie, TV projects. And then it, it turned into when it left Chicago, when it left New York for Chicago, there was a shift. There was such a massive shift that the staff, you know, no matter how much they love the jobs, they all pretty much quit en masse. And some of that was because they wanted to stay in, you know, people had families and some of it was because there were management changes, but how did, you know, you, you look at those moments, these pivotal moments, and there were, you know, I know there were efforts to save it. There were efforts, or efforts not to save it, save is the wrong word, efforts to kind of re-ownership it, rehouse it, and, and keep it where it was with the people who had it. And Yeah, one of our staffers, um, Baratunde Thurston, who has a massive media presence these days yeah. and is doing amazing work with, well, with anybody who works with these everywhere, um, he was attached to the Daily Show for a bit. He, I mean, he's he's written books. He's great. Yeah, he's um, he's a phenomenon. I, uh, I, I'm kind of in awe of Baratunde. Didn't he but start he, off as like your graphics and, editor or something? He started out as our social media guy <laughs> before anyone had a social media guy. Yeah, it's like so many things at the Onion. Half of us were like, "Why do we need a guy just to put stuff up on?" It turns out you need a guy just to put stuff up on Twitter and Instagram or whatever. Um, in fact, he, he was the first person I ever knew who had a Twitter account. I think he had like his Twitter account was like one of the first three or four hundred, <laughs> you know, because not that he was a visionary. He was just all over everything. If you looked at everything that ever worked or failed, Baratunde was probably involved with it at some point. But because um, uh, he's also a massively hard worker. And one of the pieces of work that he put in when the onion, it looked like it was going to like the staff didn't want to move. We had built our entire lives there, our entire, you know, it was being in New York was a mark of how successful we had been. We felt like we had not only, you know, made it there, 
but we didn't want to make it anywhere else. <laughs> and uh, I mean, that was the goal for as you know, for as long as I can remember. I've been fascinated with the with the Empire State Building, and now I could see it from you know the office window. And now they want us to move back. It definitely felt like, and you know, not to mention that the entire center of the comedy universe was there at the time. These days, you can argue it's L.A. Back then, there was no, um, there was no, you know, absolutely no argument that it was New York. Baratunde found us a buyer in like three weeks. Just he's <laughs> like, oh boy, uh, we're in the we're in the soup now. I I, I got to stay up all night, and, and he just worked like crazy and found us somebody that wanted to give the owners of the onion. The people who wanted to move us, they wanted to offer them, even if I could remember the amount of money, it's probably not any anything I should talk about uh, out loud, but an enormous amount of money, more than the place was demonstrably worth to stay in New York. And the owners said no. Hmm. So obviously, to me, that indicates, uh, that has always indicated that they had a buyer uh, lined up for the onion, uh, although the onion didn't, they didn't actually sell the onion until four years after it moved to Chicago or something, but neither here nor there. The point is we were scrambling to stay there. We were doing everything we could to stay in New York. We had meetings with the ownership saying that if you move the onion, everyone you care about and you know, everything you like about this place will change. Everything you find that you think it is everything that's marketable. And it did. Um, The onion's not the same now. It's, its own thing. I'm not going right. to say it's bad. And there's, and, and it's, do... it is, it is that massive shift is interesting, right? Cause it went from, again, it went from an, a, a, an almost empire into a blog, a brand, you know, 50 word posts and headlines and whatever it is now for better or worse is not what it was. So, so when that, that, that moment when, you know, there was a, a glimmer of hope that it might, you, you might be able to keep it as it was and keep doing the work you'd been doing. And then that didn't happen before, as that was sinking in, did it, did it feel like you guys had done something wrong that you, you hadn't been able to save it, that there was some, or was there just a sense of inevitability about it because you saw it coming apart and it's like, well, things are unraveling. You can't stop the unravel. Well, I don't know for for the staff. It definitely felt like there was a, there was a feeling of, of, um, I mean, you're talking about comedy people. Uh, they're all a bunch of skeptics and pessimists anyway. So there was definitely a feeling of, well, this couldn't have lasted forever combined with, we have to make this last forever. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't really, I don't know. And we honestly didn't respect at all anyone's reasons for wanting to move us. So of course that turned in, that lack of respect turned into straight out, flat out resentment. I still remember the meeting in which the, the owner just slammed his hand down on the table like a guy in a movie about a meeting <laughs> about a business meeting and said this this we're moving the onion and that's it there's nothing you can say about that and you know uh we had a couple of meetings after that but uh it really felt like that was the point at which it was over i mean the staff's attitude was um a lot of them had decided they wanted to move on and do other things anyway, eventually. I mean, we never thought the onion could last and a lot of people didn't want to, 
um, necessarily do it their entire lives. They just yeah. had wanted to leave, leave on their own terms and they were embittered about that. And a lot of them went on to do great things. But it's always, you know, to me, it's just always amazing stuff. It's, but. To me, it's always really interesting how people react when a thing that they want to keep going. And I don't, this isn't necessarily a fail point, right? But the, the, the thing that they want to keep running cannot keep running. And it could be business, could be a relationship, could be, you know, a house that you finally realize just no matter how much you love it, like it has, it has to be bulldozed in the ground. You have to start over. Um, but, but what you did next, and, and again, the reason why we're talking about this, the reason why we're talking about comedy on a car podcast, what you did next involved a big process of shift and change and the onion taught you coming up in comedy taught you and kind of warped your brain into thinking a certain way. And so I want to, want to read you something. So in, in 2006, there was a New York times piece about the onion moving to New York. Right. And by that point you'd been there five years. Um, and the st most of the staff had built families and careers and, and or built families and lives in New York city. And the whole piece was on how the onion was, how that staff was dealing with being out of their homeland. Cause they were almost all Wisconsinites. Now, Todd Hansen, the head writer, said something in that piece. He told the writer, it, it, what he said struck me as kind of defining both your career and the way that, you know, a lot of people have ended up in comedy or in car writing or in any career that isn't inherently traditional. You know, that how, how those brains operate and the idea that, that you sort of operated on as you walked away from one dream job as it came apart and kind of went about chasing another, right? So what Todd said was, None of us have a background in comedy. None of us have a background in journalism. Most of us don't have a background in anything. We were just working cash registers. And all of this happened mm -hmm. accidentally. And there's this idea that you always have to be on a path or a track. That would, I'm, this is me now, not Todd. But to get where you're going, instead of what really happens, which is that most of the world just runs on improv. And, you know, everybody, there are people who end up in, like, the track to be a lawyer or the track to be a doctor. But by and large, all the interesting stuff gets beaten. It's done by people who, you know, they do a thing and it either works or doesn't. And then when that doesn't work, they end up doing something else, right? It's, it's just looking around. You, at that point, you looked around and went, okay, now what? What was that process like? Because you tried to stay in comedy for a bit, right? You, there were job interviews. There was looking around town, right? Well, before The Onion had ever um, uh, decided to move and break up, I wanted to move on. I, I tried a couple other things just because – and this is, this, is, this, is, this is the point where I get all personal and confessional. Hmm. Um, I was kind of miserable. had nothing to do with The Onion. I was still reasonably proud of the work that I was doing there. But at one point, um, like I was just kind of a happy-go-lucky screw-up at the onion. And, um, I'm not 100% sure that they didn't just keep me on just cause I'd always been there. And because I was good for oh, a headline twice a month. No, I'm, it was I'm probably serious, more like man. three headlines, kinda... like maybe four and four headlines is a month. That that's a staffer dude. Yeah. I mean, that, that's totally. Cool. And I was, <laughs> and I was doing, and I was doing the horoscopes. So of course those are invaluable, <laughs> but I decided to demonstrate that I'd had an attitude change. And so I started the sports section, which is pretty ambitious, especially for me. I'd never had any kind of ambition before, but I wanted to show my value to the organization. So I started up something that no one else could do. No one else cared about sports. And I saw that, you know, as long as we were a magazine, quote unquote, there was room for a sports section. And definitely there's comedy to be, to be uh, mined out of sports. Um, just the whole idea that it's 
symbolic of all human endeavor is ridiculous on the face of it. And the fact that it's a genuinely gigantic entertainment economic force in America is ridiculous on the face of it and awesome, but mostly ridiculous. So I started the sports section and recruited people and talked to anybody who was writing comedy and see if they knew any friends who would like to do that and actually brought people in to, um, you know, with, with the help of, of, uh, everyone I knew brought people in to start a sports section. And basically the attitude of everyone at the paper was, that's nice. Why don't you go and do that for a while? And this can be what you do. And I'm like, I kind of did this show that I was ready for like more stuff, maybe to eventually, you know, run the whole show eventually. And they were like, I don't know, John, you, you got a good line of bullshit, pretty much the best one, but I think you're probably, you know, best suited towards doing this just because no one else can do it. And, you know, why don't you, why don't you just go like once a week, do your little sports section. And that was depressing. Um, Cause the onion was at that point, you know, I, if someone had told me that I could retire at the onion, you know, um, I would have been flabbergasted because writers don't retire, but um, I mean, true. But no, seriously. Yeah. I would, I would have, yeah, I would have been really happy. I would have been like, well, this is, you know, I can't think of any other jobs in comedy I wanted. Um, then I learned through a friend of mine that Stephen Colbert was starting his own show and heard what they wanted to do. And I'm like, I got to try it for that. That That is the other thing that I want to do with my life. That is the other comedy property that I wanted to work for in comedy. In New York, especially Saturday night live is the thing that everyone wants, you know, Why? Saturday night live is, is, is the be all end all. It's, it's the, it, you can say meaningful things on it. You can get your stuff out there if you work hard and do nothing else that are monastic about your comedy. Saturday Night Live can launch your career as a writer, as a performer. I mean, look at Bob Odenkirk. It's probably the best example. Um, and also one of the rare people who you know has a career and then lives. Um, but it's also a machine that chews people up and does a whole bunch of stuff that I don't care about. So like abstractly, I looked at everything everyone else wanted to do in comedy and I didn't want to do it. Colbert came around. I tried out for that. I had three different, um, uh, there were three different times where I, I sent packets off to Colbert. And uh, once I actually got as far as the interview and <laughs> You're did in okay. And I was you... in the room with them. Yeah. Man. With him and um, his producers and talking to them. And I was told that I just barely missed the cut. It was between me and another extremely talented woman and they didn't have enough women in the room. So they hired her and I'm like, well, you know, that sucks. This is like the only thing that I've wanted for the past five or six years. This is the only thing I ever wanted, but not having enough women in the room and hiring a woman is actually nothing I can argue with. That's a great reason. Yeah, right. That's I, if it was up to me to make that choice, that's the choice I would have made. Um, so I couldn't even be mad about it. You know, that sucked, man. Not being able to be mad about it. They had a really good reason for not hiring me. The other two times, I don't know what happened. They obviously dropped the ball there, but at least that time it was like, so I was in a very, very strange place. So when, um, one of my fascinations has always been, you know, I've always loved cars. You know, I've always loved motorcycles. They're always my escape from comedy. Comedy is such a nebulous, instinctive, soft form of art that sometimes I just needed, you know, to to um, know that if I put 
these screws here and drop this belt on this pulley here that my alternator would work. I needed something a lot more definite. So I'd work on my, I had a BMW 2002 back in Madison and I had a awful car. I, I don't know why anybody would want own one. Never driven one. They're, Never, they're just ever. the worst. Just and the worst, the, and worst. The, <laughs> the owners, the owners are the worst. I know terrible people. God. God. And, yeah. and some of them get podcasts and it's just disgusting. Then you have to listen to their voices. Oh, and they're insufferable. Gag and they have their friends on mm-hmm, and they have yeah. these little clubs. Okay. They, so, all right. So, Getting back to the point, matchy right? matchy coffee mug. Right. So, but but this is this is this is where things things really start to crackle for me on 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 the John Cruzan arc, right? Because right, what you you ended up looking at that world, this this world built of of hard forms and bolts and nuts and designs and engineering answers and things that come down to numbers and inarguable truths, right? Car A is faster than car B. Car C costs more than car D, right? Stuff that you. You cannot pull apart any further than that. And, and you, you looked at it with the stuff that builds comedy. And I don't mean you were funny about it, although I've, you've written some really funny stuff for car magazines and websites. But you, you looked at it differently and built, started building the way to think about it in the same way you, you think about anything. You know, you once, so forgive me because Google has a lot of things in it. You're not supposed to Google your friends, but you Google your friends. And there was a thing in the Huffington Post where you were talking about you're groaning. I can see see on the video that you you just made a face. Shut up. Yeah, I know where this face. is going. But you once said that comedy done well has nothing to do with stupidity. Be smart, and it just gets people thinking. Stops people from just randomly emoting. And I like this a lot because it's it is the core of why you have been in basically nonstop demand in the car business since you got into it. Right. The idea that goes through the best car and motorcycle riding is that these ostensibly simple machines mean something beyond the numbers and you know that their stories carry weight and it's okay to be smart about them to talk about them and their origins even if it's okay to be human yeah it's okay to be human about them they are powerful social tools at the very least even if the rest of the world sees them as frivolous which is great right because comedy is like it's at the core we're talking about two deeply different things that are the same on so many levels yeah, I mean, if you look at any kind of vehicle, um, just what it allows you to do is uh, uh, is you know, as it, it, it changes entire societies and it changes entire communities, not always for the best. Like, I live in a part of Madison, Wisconsin, right now, that was laid down before the automobile, so of course it's terrible to drive in, but it's beautiful, um, and that to me is part of a great. Um, human tradition going back thousands and thousands of years. Um, uh, there's a theme that goes through if you, if you study archeology span at all, and I try to read a little bit of, uh, of everything so I can be an idiot in as many fields as possible. Hmm. But um, farmers going back through like dozens of different cultures have a saying that basically boils down to the Wisconsinism. You can't eat the scenery. <laughs> In other words, if, if it's a pretty area, you can't farm it. You know, what you want is level, boring, Nebraskan, Southern Illinois stuff that you can put crops on as much as possible. But if it's beautiful, it's useless. And the same thing with, um, with setting up a transportation infrastructure. If it's a place where anyone would find attractive and really want to live, it's probably terrible for your car. And that to me has always been, the, been one of the, you know, one of the many, but one of the major uh, interesting points about being a fan of this stuff is that um, uh, 
the people that engineer the interesting stuff are the only people who care about the scenery, you know? And it's also um, like, that's all tied into who to why, you know, I, I think it has something to do with why car cars are seen as a low art and, you know, on the coast, yes. there are so few places where you can, you know, most of the people who end up with money and investment in culture, you know, end up with cars as something like sculpture, right? You know, they don't really get driven. They're in a, in a, you know, a garage right. and a diaper wax and things get touched and, and not really, really used. And, and then the other half of that is that, you know, it, the, the machine itself is this deeply egalitarian thing. So, you know, it's, it, it, but, but getting back to, to writing, right. And, and car magazines. So, so much of what you looked at and what you have looked at and why you're good at what you do is because you think about this stuff as being more than just what it is, but that wasn't like that. That's how you think, but you know, everybody evolves into the job and evolves into the career. And when you started, you know, when you were just fresh out of the onion, you know, you spent a little bit of time at Jalopnik before you left, but you know, yeah. we, we first worked together during the road and track reboot in 2012, when it came from California to Michigan and I started over with a whole new staff. What, what was it like going from being, knowing you were one of the best in the world at something and then leaving in middle age and walking into a business where you, you, you have to go back to the place where you don't know what you don't know when you start thinking, you know, well, hell, what do I do with myself now? Like you wanted to be there and you knew you were good at mm, it, but you yes. didn't know how or why, right? What did that feel like? Well, it felt, well, on, on one side, let's not get it, uh, let there be no mistake. It felt amazing. I've been reading <laughs> Road and Track since I can remember. And I was working at Road and Track. And um, first of all, it was supposed to be in Huntington Beach, which I didn't understand why all of a sudden I was in Michigan, Newport, but Newport that's okay. Beach. Newport Beach, yeah. not Huntington Beach. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not very it's California. California. Everything's a beach. <laughs> anyway, it was definitely not in a beach of any sort. Uh, but getting beyond that, it was, it was great, and that was almost part of the problem. Like I didn't want to let the fact that it was really great let me uh, lose sight of the fact that I didn't fundamentally on a lot of on a lot of levels know what I was doing. A lot of that didn't bother me because the people that hired me told me um, repeatedly that it that they would take care of that part, and tell me when I was you know <laughs> when I was getting too far off course. I'm only laughing because one of those people was me. But let, let's just push that under the rug and yeah, move on. Those, yeah, you know, I'm sure that guy, whoever told you that, was probably a genius. I mean, one of your many failures. Sure, of course. But, um, Certainly not a 2002 <laughs> owner. Who knows? Oh, those people. Anyway. Um, One thing that I wish I'd had more faith in was that one of the fundamental principles of comedy and of storytelling and therefore of any kind of writing you're ever going to do um, is that, you know, the it's, it's always about people. It's about the people who are involved in things and that storytelling is the most important part of what you're going to do. I mean, um, and that you can weave a story into anything. Uh, it's just a lot of hard work and you might not be able to see it the first time. And, but it's almost always there and you got to have faith in that. Um, and that's a, that can be a problem if you get a traditional thinker in the car magazine world who just wants to know how fast things go, then it's kind of tough to, to do everything you want to do with the story. But, um, um, I remember I don't know. we got so many letters that first year cause we, you know, the, the charge from the company that owned it was 
turn it over, make it completely new. And, you know, yes. you, you make something completely new, especially a magazine that had been around for a brand that had been around for half a century, right? It's found in the late forties, you know, you, you're going to divide people. And so, but it was interesting. I didn't expect it to fall into, so it's so hard to split. There was nobody, there were, we, we got so many letters. I mean, hundreds of letters and emails and all of them were either what you are doing is awful. John and Elaine Bond are rolling in their graves and I hate you. Please die <laughs> in a fire or hi, this is great. It's really nice to see some things I hadn't thought about and things thought about in a way I hadn't thought about. Please keep it up. I don't know if I like everything, but I like what you're doing. Nobody was in the middle. Like really interesting. Was that encouraging? It was super polarized. Was that encouraging? It was it because it it was. I mean, a lot of this is probably not very open minded to me, but a lot of the John and Elaine Bond rolling in their graves letters were written by people. Uh, if you know, you can't always tell. But the longer letters were obviously written by people that I was not writing for anyway, right. and who I did not ever consider to be my audience or the audience that Road and Track should be going after, you know? And not only that, it's a car magazine. There's not many of them. What is hard to get across to circulation people is that these people are going to read the magazine anyway. They're just going to read it and complain about it. <laughs> Everyone who says cancel my subscription is going to go and buy every other issue off the newsstand. It's just what they're going to do. Um, One of the things you, you told me early on that I've, I've tried it out and, and not taking credit for, but that stuck with me for a long time was the 11 to one rule. <laughs> I have no idea what that is. I don't remember that at all. Oh, okay. But no, the, the idea, you know, talking about the audience you want versus the audience you have and the, right. and, and the fact that ultimately you don't talk down to people, right? You, you, you talk to the smart people you have and know that everyone who may not, may not quite follow where you're going, by and large, you have to have faith in people and know that they'll get there eventually. And that if you talk down to people or try and hit them, you know, at some below average level, you're inevitably going to, you know, you, you're aiming something at the ground. You know, you're basically just pointing the airplane down and walling the throttles and then taking your hands off the yoke and going, great. Like you have to try for more. And that's, that's also like that ties back into you, you know, going, hell, I, you know, this is a, a dream job. I might as well shoot for it. The other dream job didn't really pan out, or at least it's done now. And yeah, so, okay, so that, that reboot, right? So this, this ground up rebuild the magazine. So that wasn't exactly an easy process for you personally, right? After a couple of years, you know, the staff, all new staff kind of matriculated, everybody went their separate ways. The thing sort of changed and shifted as media products and projects do, right? And what's what was difficult about that and the, 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 the cruel part was that at the same time this was happening, your father was dying. You had a, a relationship coming apart. You know, there, there were so many things going on in your personal life. It's just an immense amount of stuff to process. I, I remember, yeah, I remember you spending a lot of time quiet and, and, and a lot of time looking at yourself and then, you know, you parted ways with the magazine. Now those problems, can all seem so separate from the outside, but they, they never are. And you, you came out of it. You're great now, but in the process, did you, did you learn anything about keeping that stuff from reflecting on what you know you're good at? Because it's very, very easy to get caught up in it and think all of these things are clearly my fault job to personal life to everything. I need to change everything. Right. 
Well, at the time, I was trying to change everything. One of the reasons that I left New York and left comedy and went to work at Road and Track was that I really needed to get away from that life. Uh, New York is amazing and I'll always miss it and I'll always miss comedy. But I had managed to turn my career and my life in New York into something I didn't like. And uh, because I was the kind of, I was a guy I didn't like at that point. I think it's important to put that in. Uh, I'm not going to go off on the particulars, but I wasn't a particularly decent dude, I don't think. And I definitely wasn't living up to my idea of myself. So I wanted to go to, to, um, uh, where was it that we worked again in Michigan? Ann Arbor. <laughs> I wanted to go to Ann Arbor. Um, not because I wanted to go to Ann Arbor. I mean, just growing up in Madison, I mean, you learn to hate Ann Arbor because, you know, Oh, it's not that big bad. 10 rivalries. <laughs> It's not that I like Madison. Bad. Sure. Okay. Moving yeah. on. I like Madison a lot. Ann Arbor but, has its strengths. But it is strengths. But but the reason I was there was to rebuild myself and to help rebuild this magazine. And I thought this is the mistake I made. I thought that if I helped rebuild the magazine and did exactly what I wanted um to do for the reader and for the magazine for the institution, it would automatically work because in my life before that's what we did with the onion and that worked. So obviously it was going to work this time. That's not reliable. The two aren't comparable. The two are only comparable because, you know, they contain writing that's thoughtful and, you know, goes beyond, um, uh, what it has to do and is better than, and than it has any reason to be. And so I always liked about road and track. It was the car magazine for people who thought about other things besides cars who had a life outside of automobiles and for whom automobiles were a huge, valuable, interesting human part of a complete life. And that's what I liked about The Onion is Comedy, too. We talked about real, important human things, as well as just stupid stuff. Like The Onion could do stupid jokes, but stupid jokes are a part of life, too. Um, when it didn't work out in in Michigan, um, you know, I might have taken it a little harder than I had to just because I'd, you know... I tried, I, I tried to, um, do, I, I tried to live up to what I thought, uh, to what, to what the brand had always meant to me. I tried to live up to what road and track had always meant to me and what it's always done for me. And, um, for various reasons that kind of fell through. And, uh, um, part of it was just because I was green as grass and I didn't know completely what I was doing yet. And, um, uh, one of my big strengths is helping other people with their writing and with their editing. And there were enough good writers there that there wasn't that much demand for me. No, don't be so as much demand for me as I could have. No, I mean, you know, that wasn't, that was an all-star cast at that, at that magazine for, for two, three, four years there. Um, and the one that came after it was pretty damn good too, but now we're getting into a lot of inside baseball to me, that part of failure, um, that was the, you know, it's not exactly storybook, but that was another time in my life where I was forced to actually take stock of myself and see if I had enough gas in my tank and enough gumption to go on from the failure of my second dream job. This is how I thought of it. The failure yeah. of my second dream job in three years, you know, but it, but that's the thing, um, right? Cause it didn't turn out to be a failure of the second dream job. It was just a shift. And I mean, we, we, right. It's so, it, it can be yeah. so difficult to have a lens on these things that's longer than, 
longer than the end of our nose, right? Especially when you're in, I mean, nobody gets into this business without an emotional connection. If you do, you are right. you're in the wrong place because there's not a lot of money. There's long hours. Like you have to love the core of it. And the core of it is what keeps you moving. But at the end, like when, when certain projects that you get so attached to, and I think this, this goes for any business that people care about, right? When stuff that you get attached to ends and you've, you've staked so much of yourself in it, you, know, you could be so compelled to either fight to keep it, like, you know, like the, the whole onion process when things came apart or, you know, fight to keep yourself in the same headspace. I mean, I know for me that that's, that's difficult, right? You know, the idea that I worked and thought a certain way here and it was great in that period. And now that I'm in yes. a different period, I'm going to work and think the same way because <laughs> I want the greatness to happen again or because that's just, it's what worked for me. But it doesn't because it's every single, it, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know, man. I mean, it's a whole lot of hackneyed, <laughs> it's a whole lot of an awful translation into car stuff. It's, but th this is where my head goes. You know, it's like, it's like racing in the rain where every single corner, every single lap, every instant, the grip changes. And you, if you're not evaluating it differently every moment, you're doing something wrong. You're missing what's going on, right? It's not a static exercise. And I, these careers, right. you know, any creative career anybody gets into, you're, you, are, you are forced to kind of constantly rethink where you're going. And I think if you're not doing it, if you're looking for some solid mold to fit into, you're doing it wrong. But you and I have talked about before how a job like this is actually um, harder in a lot of ways than becoming a doctor or a lawyer or where, yes, it's hard. It, law school is incredibly hard. Med school is incredibly hard. And they go out of their way to make it as hard as possible. But you're on track. You're on a track um, um, where if you do this thing, then the next step is very obvious to you. Like if you get through your residency, then um, you're going to be uh, a right. baby doctor somewhere. Right. And then you're going to work your way up inside a department um, or in law school. Year one, if you get through year one, there's year two. If you get through year two, you, I actually have, uh, don't know enough about law <laughs> school to go on about aren't, that. But aren't hard, but, right? I mean, it, they're it, incredibly hard. It's, it's just a different but the, path. But the difficulty, yes. And with us, we could wake up tomorrow and not know exactly who it is we're writing for. And like freelancing for me was terrible. I mean, really? Um, well, that aspect had, of it. I mean, was you terrible. had so much work. You were in sort of such demand. Why was it awful? Um, just because of the uncertainty, like I never felt like I could. And the great thing was when personally I learned to take that in stride. <laughs> um, because I got a little bit of my confidence back and I got a little bit of my belief in myself and my ability to be you know, helpful to other human beings back. And I got a, you know, a little bit of my writing confidence back, which I still struggle with. I still have massive problems being confident in my own writing. Everybody does. Um, yeah, well, that's not, that's not just unique to me. I'm just saying I'm a, I'm a fairly typical writer that way, but, um, there's always that voice inside you that is telling you that it's, it's not going to work out. I mentioned the 11 to one rule before and you, 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 oh, yeah. what is what that by the way? I have no idea. The 11 to one rule. You were talking about us getting all that mail, right? The 11 to one rule was taught to me by uh, people at a company called media audit who came to the onion one day and they're like, you guys don't get mail. And we're like, Oh my God, we get, we get very little mail. And what we do, I mean, we, we read very little mail. We get a lot of it. It just gets thrown out. We don't read our own mail. We're successful and we just don't want to do that to ourselves because 
were incredibly fragile comedy writers. We do, we did hilariously have a, um, oh, come on, drawers of paper, file cabinet. God, we're, <laughs> nice. we're in a- Nice, you just had to struggle to think of the word file cabinet. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're in a digital age now. word we're in, people. We are professional word people. Yeah, but we don't deal with paper anymore. We had a file cabinet full of cease and desist orders. So the people in media audit said, wow, that's great, but it, it takes us out of an important uh, metric that we have for your success because there's something in their business, which is, which I guess is now transformed into, into um, the metrics that you use to evaluate websites and everything. But they were a company that did it for print publications and for newspapers and for magazines. They had the 11 to 1 rule is you will get 11 pieces of hate mail for every one piece of mail saying you're doing great <laughs> because people are much more likely and much more motivated by anger and disgust. So they'll sit down they are 11 times more likely to sit down and tell you you're doing terrible than to tell you they're doing great. Cause if you're doing great, they're just like, ah, that's cool. This magazine is enriched my life. I'm going to go on and, you know, and, and kick up my heels and, you know, watch butterflies and have a good day. If you actually do a bad job, people will let you know about it. People are less likely to praise. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily because people are bad. It's because if you do your job, you just make them happy and then they go on. That's such if a you weird make them mad, cult. they'll dwell on it. That's such a weird cultural thing, right? Like you would like for the betterment of humanity, it should be the opposite. And yet we've developed this whole it should system be the opposite. where if things are going yeah. like even slightly less than perfect, we're going to we're going to dismantle you and you are going to know it. And everyone who could possibly make you feel better, they're just going to keep their mouth shut. What I didn't realize until, and like, I remember talking about this with, um, uh, with you at Road and Track and, um, uh, our coworker, Josh Condon had already heard of it, which is not surprising to me because Josh Condon is, uh, was grown in a vat somewhere to work in magazines someday. He's, he's like, executive he's editor of magazine guy. He's executive editor of Rob Report now, which, which I love because my favorite piece of Josh Condon trivia is that he owns like three tuxedos and he knows he has a different use for each one of them. Yes. He's just this, it's just ridiculous, but yeah, go on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Josh Condon once idly in a conversation with me, took out my pocket square while talking to me, folded it perfectly, put it back in my pocket and never broke, never broke character. And I'm like, wow, that is the most Josh Condon thing I've ever seen. Um, he's the kind of man who will straighten your tie and you won't feel like that was weird. You'll feel like huh, that guy just straightened my tie. He'd heard of the 11 to one rule. What I wasn't used to and what it took me for a while to realize I was a couple years in a freelance before I realized your own head will do that to you. Oh, it's such a man. human thing that your own head, your own brain will send you 11 pieces of information about how you suck. Oh man. Before your own brain will say, you're doing a good job with this. I never thought about that. God, my, yeah. I, my, I think my brain probably has a, a 22 to one rule or a 33 to one rule, but yeah. Don't, I never... Something like, yeah. God. Okay. But... So you obviously didn't, to, to move on here, right? You, you obviously didn't suck. You know, you're at Psycho World now. You freelanced really successfully for several years in a wide variety of stuff and you ended up at Cycle World because you had been, you know, doing drop-in editing for you know the group that owns these these three or four motorcycle brands, and they ended up basically Octane Publishing, yes. yeah. And they liked you so much they wanted to hire you at a time in the business when most places aren't hiring and everybody's contracting. So you should take that as a compliment. And if you don't, I'll drive to your house and slap you. But I've written about and covered bikes and it it takes a different lens and it's it's not just because oh my god there's two wheels and it's on the floor it's because it's a different way of thinking and a different the people think differently and they come to the media for yes. they come to magazines and websites and video for different reasons so what was that 
shift like? How did your how did your head tilt there? My head tilted there um, pretty easily. Uh, <laughs> if someone had said back when I answered an ad in, uh, on Jalopnik's website, they're like, "We need a weekend and evenings editor," and it didn't turn out to be what I did. But they're like, send us an email with one line telling us what you do. And I wrote in, I am the sports editor of The Onion. And my phone <laughs> rang. I'm not, I'm not kidding. My phone rang less than an hour later. Um, so The Onion brand really did me really well there. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, if that had been for a cycle world or for a motorcyclist, um, I only lasted three months at Jalopnik. It was a bad fit. I wasn't particularly good at the job. Um, you left. I right? had a hard time. You just went back to the onion. With, I, I just went back to the onion. Yeah. Um, um, and it just, you know, I just wasn't very good at it, but that was fine with me because, but you when also, I got there, the culture wasn't exactly somewhere I wanted to hold on though. I mean, you know. like you, you're painting this, like, you know, you went over there and all of a sudden they had you, you know, they flush you down the toilet. Like I, I, I knew you oh, no, during no, this no, process. No, no. Like you, you had this really cool moment where you, but like, most people don't, you know, you, it, on on yes. paper, you got into tried a version of your dream job, and you realized it wasn't a good fit, and it, you didn't like doing what you were doing, and then you left. You know, you had this this recognizance, this moment of just of reality, which is that's a real thing. Like, be proud of yourself for that, dude. I did feel like that was healthy. I didn't really like going to uh, um, to my boss Ray Wirt at the time and saying, oh, "Hey, man. I'm not having any fun here, and I don't feel like I'm helping you out." Uh, and he was like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> but was, at the same I time, he didn't put up Ray. too much of a fight. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Ray's, Ray's a good one. But, uh, uh, yeah, he was like, yeah, oh, yo, you jerk. You know, you sold me a bill of goods, you, you rat. But, yeah, because uh, all of a sudden we're in a 30s screwball comedy, but go on. <laughs> well, I mean, Ray's a little bit of a 30s screwball comedy boss. I'd stake my Peloton. Like. John Cruzan working in this job. I'd do it. I swear it's going to happen. You call the governor back from his fishing trip and you tell him. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, okay. Um, um, we, we turn Ray into, uh, into Cary Grant right now. Yeah. He owes us for that. Yeah, or, yeah, or, or some, us somebody in the Hudsucker proxy. But go on. Some mid-Atlantic character. Anyway. Um, yeah, so... I had actually set things up at the onion so I could come back if it didn't work out, which is one of the great things about having worked there your entire adult life. But I was going through my stuff the other day and I found the letter that they gave me. They're like, we're letting you back in. And it, it says in no uncertain terms, we're letting you back in. Please don't screw up. <laughs> you know, you were obviously burned out. You obviously burned out and that's why you went there. We expect you to be on the ball from now on. And uh, we never really got a chance to find out if that was going to happen or not, because not too long after that, the whole thing went to, went to Chicago. So, um, uh, anyway, um, motorcycles though, like the, the, the actually, mental motorcycles shift. Was, yeah. was a question. Yeah. The mental shift is, is mostly this in the subject matter. No one has to have a motorcycle the way they have to have a car in America to have a job, to have a career, to have a social life. Motorcycles are completely optional. And they always will be. So there's no motorcycle equivalent of a minivan. There's no, I mean, maybe scooters. But even a scooter's more fun than a minivan. Come on, man. I, I can't make Give a scooter. Give me a Honda joke. Ruckus I like any scooters. day. I, I don't know. I like and I've scooters. owned scooters. Scooters are fun. I have a bunch of bikes. I'd have more yeah. scooters if I had more money and more room. 
If I, I actually have a use for a scooter now, and I'm actually looking uh, for a nice used Honda Ruckus because, of course, who doesn't want a Honda Ruckus? <laughs> but, um, yeah, I live on the west side of a medium-sized American city. Of course I have a use for a scooter. Anyway, uh, they're just more serious. They're more committed. Uh, no one's there because they have to be. Everyone's there because they love it. There's just a higher level of, and this is a very overused word in our business, but there's a higher level of passion. There's a higher level of people who are there. Because, and also, motorcycles are difficult. I mean, people make a big deal in the in the car world about, oh, save the manuals, learn to drive a manual um, transmission, learn to, you know, use all three pedals. I'm like, boy, have I got a degree of difficulty for you. <laughs> I love I love anything where there's a certain degree of competence or you get spit into a ditch, right? If you do not have that degree of competence, you are just going to wrap your wrap your neck around a tree, right? Like I, I went to uh, yeah, I hope yeah, exactly. <laughs> I went to I went to dirt school, Jimmy Lewis Dirt School, um on vacation like oh man, four or five years ago at this point. It's out in Pahrump, out outside Las Vegas on a big dry lake bed. And you know, the the big wake up was at one point he looked at the group and he's like, All right, if you suck at this, you know it because there's things you can't do. And somebody raised their hand and they're like, What what can I do? And he's like, Think about the last trail you kind of tried to go down on a dirt bike and you had to turn around because you got to a point where you couldn't keep riding the thing anymore. And the guy was like, yeah. And he was like, well, you know, that's the point where you can't do the thing. Because really, you can get a dirt bike down pretty much any trail. But if you got to that point, that's the limit of your talent. Hello, welcome. And then he clapped and everybody laughed. I just love the idea that the water line there, like it, you have to be a certain amount of good in order to do certain things. And it forces you to, to think a certain way, right? Exactly. I mean, and it's, you know, it's full of the kind of people who look at that and think, Either I welcome the challenge <laughs> or the challenge kind of sucks because <laughs> the downside is big, but it's worth the good parts. Right. You know, those are the two ways. I guess I fall more into the second line of thinking the older I get. But when I was a kid, I had my first motorcycle uh, when I was 14. I found a crappy Honda at a garage sale for a hundred bucks. And I actually had a hundred bucks from corn detasseling and what is corn detasseling? I, I don't know what that okay, is. Okay. If you want to make seed corn, the corn can't be germinated. So you pull the, the tassel off the top of the corn, the thing that looks like a chicken foot with me. pollen nope, hanging off of it. it. Nope. Well, it's hard, terrible, boring, uh, demanding, dehydrating work. Um, because it's on a farm and all farm work is like that. <laughs> Hats off to farmers as always. But um, uh, yeah, I had a hundred bucks and I had it in cash, believe it or not. It wasn't actually squirreled away somewhere. Were you so good I told at the, corn detasseling? Was that, is that a thing? That, is that one of your talents? Is this something I didn't know? I, Am I learning? I don't think it's the kind of thing you're good at or bad at, really. <laughs> I think it's the kind of thing you do. It's like being good at using a shovel. <laughs> I'm sure there are degrees of competence there, but no one really pays attention. I don't, I don't think you've yeah. watched me shovel, but but you're very kind. Go on. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. So I dragged this. You had you I had dragged, money I dragged corn. this. Yeah, yeah. I had my corn and my farm money. I also help people weed strawberry beds in case you want to go off on that for like ninety seconds. Oh, shut up! Just but, keep going. Uh, <laughs> but, um. Yeah, it was all in fives, ones, and a couple tens, and I brought him by this guy's house, and he let me have a motorcycle because the Midwest in the early 80s, basically still the 70s, um, and 
I rode it around that entire summer, hiding it from my parents, which is easier than you might think when you grow up in the country. You can hide a lot of stuff <laughs> in, a, in a forest or behind a barn or something. Uh, we weren't farmers, but we were the only people in the area who weren't. So, And no one notices another you know, machine laying around their farm. I still have to explain probably to the Zweefels why there was a Honda behind their barn a couple times there. <laughs> but uh, I absolutely loved it, and it was great, and people just let me do it. And um, it was the first time in my life I remember thinking, this is challenging. This is not – people think it's going to be because bicycles – Riding a motorcycle is, in a lot of ways, not intuitive at all. But I worked it out. And, of course, I had Cycle World and Phil Schilling's excellent magazine Cycle back then and Motorcyclist to tell me exactly what I should be doing. So I went to the – this is the kind of kid I was. I wasn't motorcycling very well, so I rode my motorcycle to the library illegally <laughs> to learn how to motorcycle better. Most people just go out and fall down a lot. You decided to fall down into books, but – I decided I didn't want to fall down as much. So I read about, I probably still fell down a lot. I didn't really wipe out that bike that much. I was a very timid rider, but it was still a challenge and it was great. Nowadays, I I think more along the lines of, well, it's worth the risk and I'm aware of what the risk is and I'm practiced and experienced it riding around the risk and minimizing the risk. So it's okay. So I would like to get back into the first category where it's more of a fun challenge. Okay. I'm going, uh, we did dirt school pretty soon to to re you know to reset my mind that way, but yeah. Okay, so that's a that's a good note because we're unfortunately about out of time, but that's a good note to to jump off on, right? You know, the idea yeah. of of things coming apart. So we have a minute left, and and there's one more thing. We have this question we ask everybody who comes on the show to close things out, right? It's a simple thing, but the the answers are answers are always pretty great because they're different for everybody. And the question is. What's the first thing that goes through your head when things go wrong? It can be anything. Uh, wrong in what? And this is important you don't get a follow-up question. Wrong in what particular? Oh, I don't get a follow-up question. What's the first thing that goes through my head when things go wrong? Um, I mean, after the normal expletives that anyone goes through, it's a um, combination. How did this happen? What did I do that this that this came about, like, could I have prevented this? And sometimes it's more constructive than others, but it's definitely my first thought. It's like, could I have prevented this with better planning, better organization, better execution? Um, and if I'm in a bad mood, it's, could I have prevented this by being a better person, by maybe, you know, not staying up so late at night, by maybe getting my laundry done? So, but I'm definitely a, why did this happen? How can we prevent it sort of thing? <laughs> I think of that before I think, okay, now how can I fix it? <laughs> Well, that's, I definitely go towards prevention first. That's, that's so. a pretty good answer. And um, I'm going to be extremely disappointed if the book of your life story is not called All the Normal Expletives. But John, <laughs> thank you for taking the time. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate it. And uh, talk to you in a bit. Thanks, man. Mm -hmm.